five, scores! Rick Five. We've decided to get ourselves back in the game again with our podcast. Rick Five. Probably the craziest story that you're ever going to hear about hockey. We're going to be coming back to you on a regular basis. You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Welcome, everyone, to episode 75 of the Squid and Ultimate Leaf Fan Show. I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leaf Fan. Joining me, as always, my winger, Ricky Squid Vibe. Squid, how are we keeping? Uh, we're doing all right, Mike. Uh, didn't get a lot of sleep last night for some reason. I don't know what it was. It was a restless night. But, no, the uh, Leafs lost. Nonetheless, yeah, maybe that was it. I watched that. Well, I watched my son lose first, and then I watched the Leafs lose, and then, then I watched uh, – Oh, Yellowstone. Oh, yeah. Episode six of the new season. And, and then I came, went to bed and laid there for a while and got up, went back down, watched a little more TV. <laughs> so, anyway, uh-huh. late night. Well, Squid, our guest today, after a career with the Marlies in junior hockey, uh, went undrafted, but would enjoy a very impressive hockey career nonetheless. First, enjoying almost 14 year pro career. Uh, in the ECHL, win four Riley Cups, finals and MVP in two of those, seven years coaching, elected to the ECHL Hall of Fame in 2008, played a little roller hockey along the way, uh, still involved in the game as a scout for Nashville, and near and dear to my heart is an avid hockey collector, but very impressive collection. Please welcome this good and ultimate fan show, Nick Matucci. Nick, thanks for joining us, and how are you making up, man? Everything's good. Thank you for having me, guys. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to spend some time with you. Well, you and Squid crossed paths during your playing days when he was coaching in South Carolina. We we did. We had some uh, we had some good rivalries down in the Carolinas between uh, the Charlotte Checkers and the South Carolina Stingrays, and and uh, geez, I might have even crossed paths with you with the Greensboro Monarchs before I ended up in Charlotte as well. And and uh, um, I, I'm sure Rick, you probably feel the same way. I loved it down in the Carolinas, and I you know between Winston Salem, Greensboro, Charlotte, and then. Greenville, South Carolina, where I finished my playing career and started my coaching career. Um, that, that was a great place, to, uh, states to live in for sure. Oh, there's no question. Uh, Carolinas are beautiful. The, the weather's great. Uh, North Carolina up in the northern part, and even South Carolina up past Greenville, they tend to get a little bit colder, a little bit more snow, but it's a beautiful area. And uh, as a matter of fact, my son played, uh, I think he played 10 games in Greenville. He did. Uh, yeah. He got injured during the summer, went there and played, I think, 10 games. I think he had 12 goals and eight assists. And then he got called up to Hartford, and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Justin was one of those players that, you know, he he was real. I, I remember him. I, he's still playing, isn't he? Is he still in Cincinnati, I believe? Yeah, he's still, he's still playing in Cincinnati. In fact, they just said – Three more guys called up today to Providence and, and Rochester. So they're pretty depleted right now uh, as far as their best players are all gone. Uh, they're all up in the American League. I think there's six guys all together. And two of them are goalies, which kind of sucks because those are the backbones of your team in, in, at that level. And more than likely, those guys ultimately get called up to the American League when there's an injury, and that's what has happened. So both Michael Hauser and Robson – uh, who's been playing for them uh, as of late are both in Rochester. So yeah, 
Yeah, and I know Michael Hauser really well because he uh, he single handed eliminated us from playoffs uh, uh, with the Toledo Walleye. I can't even remember how many years ago, but he uh, he was absolutely fantastic against us in a series where Cincinnati eliminated us, and and uh, uh, he he was he was great, and it was nice to see him uh, get that start and that win last year with the Sabres mm-hmm. at the end of the year, because he was a long time minor leaguer and, and, uh, th- those are nice stories, but Justin was one of those players for so long as well, right. That was that call up guy and would go and leave on long stretches and play yeah. years. And, and, uh, you love to have those guys on your ECHL team, but you know that they're not going to be there long. And then you're scrambling when you lose them. And I'm sure you, uh, you lived that during your coaching time down in South Carolina as well. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the way it is in that league, and you, you kind of have to live with it. It, it, it kind of sucks sometimes because it's not your, you know, your your fifth and sixth defenseman or your no. your third line or fourth line that are getting called up. It's your best players. And yeah. when you lose three or four of your best players, that you know, that makes your lineup quite a bit le- uh, weaker. But at the same time, you're happy for them because they're getting an opportunity to play at a higher level to see how they can compete at that level and possibly get full-time employment at that level at some point. So, you know, you can't begrudge the kid. You got to let him go, see how he does. And, and hopefully, you know, he, he shines and, and gets a contract and, uh, and you never see him again. Yep. I know that doesn't help your hockey club, but it helps a kid. And I guess that's kind of the, well, that was my feeling when I coached in that league was it's all about them and getting them to the next level if, I, if, if it's possible. And, uh, you know, some of them were happy to be at the level they were at. Other guys aspired to go up and play in the American League. And I know I know Justin has played almost 300 American League games, yeah. which is pretty good. Um, so, you know, it's – but that's just the way the double-A hockey, as they call it, is in the <laughs> – it, There's yeah. nothing you can do about it. No, and, and you know, it's so, it's, and, you know, a lot of people up here, and, and we're in the Niagara area, Rick, but even friends of mine and stuff like that, they never understood that double league level and, and what went into it all. And uh, then they'd come down and visit and go to games and like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. Like, what hockey is great. And, um, but because of the distances, like, I, you know, down in with Greenville, we would recruit players to the warm weather and the golf courses and the, mm-hmm. you know, that part of it, because that was a recruiting tool. I coached in Toledo for nine years and you, you didn't have a beach to recruit to. You didn't have your round golf to recruit to. So you recruited to the fact that, you know, times are sort of tough with a lot of teams. The IHL dissolved shortly uh, before I, I got into to being a head coach and teams are starting to watch the costs a little bit. And it was a lot easier for, you know, American league teams to call players up from Toledo to Grand Rapids or Cleveland or, or, you know, car drives away rather than short, short notice flights where they're going to cost you a few bucks to get somebody there. So that was my recruiting tool. And, and just like you said, I, um, I, uh, you know, I couldn't be mad about it because that's how I recruited the guys to Toledo yeah. was the opportunity for, for players to be moved up and, and get a cup of coffee at the next level. So, but you're right. You, you don't lose your, your, uh, your third liners and your, your bottoms, pair of defensemen it's always your your best players and uh i mean there was days where i had practices on a friday morning and i lost five four or five players 
by the time we came back to the rink Friday night. And, you're, you know, you're finding beer oh, yeah. players and guys who've been retired who still <laughs> live in the area just to throw a jersey on for that night. But um, uh, it's all the, the fun part that once you're away, you, know what it, it, you remember and you talk about it. But it was fun, though. It was fun. I enjoyed it because it was it was a bigger challenge when you lost those guys, your better players. It was a big challenge for you as a coach to keep winning. Or to try and keep winning, and 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 I, I loved it because it was it was a great challenge for you. You lose three players, and the challenge was okay, boys. We don't lose two games in a row while these guys are up. I don't care what happens. We're gonna, you know, and, and that was a good challenge. I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, and then it, the, to the players as well who got to step up now and maybe play outside of their yeah. comfort zone to fill the boots that that just you know walked out of the locker room as well. So th those were all positive things uh, for me as well as a coach. Well, let's look at uh, where yeah. you are now, uh, Nick. Uh, you know, currently you're working as a pro scout for Nashville, previously with New Jersey for five years. Uh, first off, where are you headed this week? You know what? I got a close week this week, and I hope it I hope it goes off because uh, uh, there's been a bunch of cancellations as far as COVID uh, games, and and uh, uh, especially up in New York and, and the East. So um, I am going to be in, if I remember right, I'm I'm going to Buffalo tomorrow. I think Anaheim's in Buffalo, and then I got a game in Rochester on Wednesday, uh, in Toronto Thursday, back in Rochester on Friday. And then I'm, I'm actually taking the weekend off. There's a sort of a, a local player, the Welland Junior B organization here that's been around for a long, long time. One of the, uh, you know, the all-time leader in points and goals and yeah. and uh, just one of those guys. His name is Mark Forster and Foss coached after he retired and just was a great mentor to a lot of people. They're, they're retiring his jersey this weekend and he's the first person to ever have his jersey retired here in Welland. So they're having a, a little event on Saturday night and then the jersey's going to be uh, hung on Sunday. So I, I wanted to, to be here for that as well. So I'm uh, going to spend a little home time this weekend. And then next week, geez, I go to Nashville Tuesday. I go to Stockton, California on Wednesday and Friday. And then I'm in Seattle Saturday, Sunday and fly back to Buffalo for a game Monday. So uh, good air miles uh, coming up here. Better you than me because I don't yeah. like flying. <laughs> well, what I was going to say now, what, now, now, Nick, why don't you give the listeners an idea what entails being a pro scout versus an amateur scout? Well, the, the difference, I, and me personally, I think the amateur scouts, that's, that's probably the hardest job in hockey because you, you're, you're having to recognize talent, but then you're trying to project what that talent's going to look like in three and four and five years. And I think that's a, just a, a tough, tough job to, to be able to have a handle on that. Uh, the, the pro scouts, um, you know, we're, we, we have our teams that we're responsible for. So both the NHL and the American League team. And, and I, have, uh, I have seven teams that I'm responsible for. And I basically have to know those players and those rosters from top to bottom. And, and what, what we really gear for, where the amateurs, they're, they're gearing for the draft. And, and they're, all their work is being done for the NHL entry draft. Well, ours is really being done for free agency. Uh, for the most part, mm -hmm. but um, you know, to have a handle on these guys, what we think their strengths and weaknesses are, what comparables uh, in our organization can, can we, you know, sort of compare them to, uh, but you need to know the rest of the organization as well for trades, because uh, you know, a lot of times there's a, mm -hmm. a one for four trade and you, you've got minor league pieces that are part of it. And, and you have to have a handle on those players as well, just to know exactly what you might want to bring in, uh, in a trade if it's, uh, you know, a lot of players that are involved with it. So um, 
So it, it's really that, knowing what the strengths and weaknesses are of these players, how they're trending at a certain time, where we feel they could fit in our organization, whether it's with the big club or in the American Hockey League, and, and really you know, players in our organization that we can compare them to as well. So here, Nick, all this time I thought goalies weren't that smart for <laughs> playing goal, but you and, and Jason Fitzsimmons, who is my goalie, is a, does the same thing with the Washington Capitals. So you guys are smart. <laughs> you know what, Rick? I've told people for, and, and I, I'm fortunate that when I do have a day off here or there, I can work with youth goalies too. And I always tell people that the goalies are the smartest ones on the ice. And I, I can use you, Rick, as a perfect example that, you know, a lot of people don't know, but the square footage of a, of a NHL rink is 17,000 square feet. So you were, a you know, power forward and a mucker and a grinder and physical and slashing and hacking and whacking. And you were doing all of that to try and get possession of the puck and we as goaltenders yeah. Fitzy and I we just stood in one spot waited for it to come to us so who was smart and who wasn't <laughs> but Fitzy was uh Fitzy was a great goaltender you know there are a lot of players that came through that league and goaltenders that came through that league that you know I got excited to play against because I knew I'd have to be my best every night to try and beat them and Fitzy certainly was one of those goaltenders now who do you report to uh Nikki and, and what and when you do do your reports and you submit them, how often do you do that? And how often do you speak to your superiors? Well, so I'm, I'm going to kind of do a little rebuttal against yeah, what sure. I just said about how goalies are so smart, because for me, with the reports, <laughs> I, uh, I'm i not capable of chasing reports. I, I think one of my best assets is I'm a good self-evaluator, and I know I can't chase a game or two. So for, for me, and it works for me, is I go see a game, I have to finish that report before I go to another game. It's just how I work. And yep. for me to try and remember two, three, four games ago doesn't work for me. It does with some people, but I, I know it doesn't work for me. So I will always get the report done, you know, whether it's it's that night if I'm going to a hotel, maybe I'll do one team or start on it, and then the next morning finish it off before I go to my next game. Um, we have a, a, our assistant in, in Nashville, since I got there, the one thing I, I realized with, with you know David Poyle and, and his experience is he, he's a real big believer in chain of command. And our, our head of scouting is a gentleman named Jeff Kelty. And Jeff, uh, he kind of overlooks all the scouting for both pro and amateur. And uh, what what a brilliant uh, hockey eye he remembers ever. He's one of those guys who just remembers everything about a player. He might have seen him 10 years ago, and he can tell you exactly what he is and and, and such. And so we we send all our reports through, through a, a computer software system where all the scouts in our organization can have a look and, and, and read about, you know, what we're saying about players and such. But um, Jeff will usually check in once or twice a week. Um, or if, if, you know, somebody's talking, talking with David Poyle about a trade or a player or something, he'll call Jeff and then Jeff will call that scout, whoever's responsible for, for that team that that player is on. But usually Jeff will check in once or twice a week just to say hello or if something's come across that that he wants uh, some information on a player. But as a, as a pro staff, we'll usually have a, a Zoom call every two or three weeks or so and just, uh, you know, kind of go over some things and David will tell us what he's hearing as well. Um uh, and then we'll go in and uh, uh, we were all there for training camp for five days. And then we're going to go back again in January for a five day meeting where we, you know, actually get together face to face as well. So the communication is, is, is really good, I find. And, um, you know, the information that's exchanged helps all of us make better decisions. Well, it's funny. Uh, I, I think that's probably 
I mean, yeah, the amateur draft is very, very important. And those guys are, like you say, are looking at guys that they're trying to project what they're going to be like in three years, four years, whatever. Whereas like, but pro scouting is, is vital as well, because like you said, and I, from talking to Fitzy, it's the same thing. Like he, I don't know how many times a year Fitzy will call me and say, well, what do you think of this guy on Toronto? Because he doesn't get to Toronto that often, but I, yeah. I, he knows that I watch all the games. Yeah. So he'll call me and say, well, what about this guy? What do you think? Do you think he'd fit into our, uh, I say, yeah, absolutely. Or no, I don't think so. And, you know, so it's vital that you guys know all the guys, even in the minors on, on those teams that you're in charge of in case they're talking to that team about a trade. Uh, I think that's probably as as important as the amateur draft. And and if you're at it long enough, and, and what I find is you, you can kind of get a feel how a player progresses as well. So I'll use Carter Verhage, who's down in Florida yep. right now. He's oh, had a yeah. couple great years. But you know, I, I saw – exactly. And I saw Carter play his first year as a pro in Syracuse. And was, you know, got a bite of the penalty kill and was a bottom, you know, six forward, but worked hard, showed you a little skill. Now, the second year Carter came back, now now he's a penalty killer. He's a committed defensive player. But now he's starting to get a bite of the power play as well. And now you're starting to see, you know, some real good offensive play out of him. And, and uh, you know, that quick twitch thinking ability under pressure and just, just mm-hmm. things that jump out at you. Now, the third year Carter played, led the, led the American Hockey League in scoring. So you've kind of seen him progress in three years to, to be in obviously one of the top players in the American Hockey League. Well, now it's kind of like being a rookie again, right? So if you go through the OHL and, you know, the first year you're carrying everybody's bags and by the last year they're carrying yours, but now you're a pro and you're carrying bags again. So so Carter, you know, finally gets to the NHL, but kind of rewind three, four years earlier, he's on the fourth line and he's just killing penalties and that's it with, with Tampa Bay. but. I've seen yeah. him and and progress from that at a different <clears throat> level, but knew he had that in him, and that's exactly what he's done now in the National Hockey League. Is he's he's earned coaches' trust, he's gotten bites of power play, and now he's a top uh, top offensive player. But the joy to coaches, and I think Rick, you would agree with this, complete two hundred foot player because he learned how to play defense, he learned how to kill penalties, he learned how to be committed behind his own blue line, and now he's getting a chance to show everybody what he has, uh, you know, north of the blue line. Well, it's funny that you brought his name up because I remember Justin was playing in in uh, Bridgeport when he was part of the Islanders, uh, Verhage, and he got called up from the Missouri Mavericks in the ECHL to play in Bridgeport. And I watched him and I thought, you know, this kid, he was young. I think he was probably 20 years old or 21 yeah. years old at the time. Um, and he wasn't getting a whole lot of ice time, but you know, when, when he did get a little bit of ice time, you could see that he had something there that, you know, he's going to be a better player than he is now, and he's going to get an opportunity to do so. And so it was funny you brought that name up, but he's, I mean, he's having a great two years in the National Hockey League. It's been a real big transformation. I didn't expect it to be that good. Yeah. <laughs> I knew he was going to be a better player, but I did not expect that. And I'm happy for the kid that, he, that he's able to do that. Yeah, so, Nick, besides yeah. the progression you're seeing with players, uh, and besides the obvious things you look for at a player, maybe more at the American Hockey League level, a veteran who's been sent down or somebody, we could use Evander Kane a bit in this situation maybe because that could be a very loaded question. But away from him, I'm thinking of things like 
Are you watching for a guy? Let's use him as an example and just to be, pretend all the other stuff associated with him wasn't there and he was sent down. Would you be watching things like body language or how he responds after a good or a bad shift, reaction to teammates, how he responds if someone goes offside when he has the puck or he isn't passed to, you know, how he sits on the bench after a bad play, head down, things like that. Would all those things come in the equation of watching the maturity of some of these players as well? 100% and, and you basically nailed, hit the nail right on the head, right across the board with that for sure. And I, I've used um, the goaltender Yaroslav Halak a lot in, in, uh, in, in, in speaking with, with what I hope to see when a player who has been in the national hockey league, you know, a mm-hmm. long time, and now he's in the minors, what, what you kind of hope that they, they're using that opportunity for. And for me, uh, and, and funny, you mentioned Bridgeport, Rick, um, I, I would go into the Bridgeport arena. Um, there, there might be 500 fans in there. And Yaroslav Halak was playing like it was game seven of the Stanley Cup finals every single night. Every single night. He was just battling every night. And I, I really didn't know him until I went in there. And I was a big, big fan of his after that. And there's no, no, to me, it wasn't surprising that he got back into the National Hockey League and, and is still there just because of what you saw out of him, uh, that I saw him in, in that one year that I watched him play. And, uh, you know, that that's what you hope to see with those guys is if they have to go down, even uh, even if it's a, a conditioning stint, you, you know what, like, you're one of the best players in the world, like, like, show that be, be a also be a good role model for the guys who are trying to get to where you just came back from as well and and uh you know that's good to see and i'll, I'll be interested to see what evander kane you know obviously the, the off-ice issues he's had but he's still a good hockey player you know he's still a good hockey player. he might be able to help somebody but you, it's hard to add somebody into your locker room and into your culture um uh, you know, if, if you don't have a strong leadership group that can that can handle that as well. And and uh, I hope the best for every hockey player. And I hope he's able to, you know, straighten yeah. stuff out for himself and, and he can get back to where his abilities allow him to be back to. Yeah, we do. I mean, he's too good a player. So, I mean, where I'm looking for on yeah. that is him, not maybe specifically was, but he's a good example would be. Uh, maybe he's a uh, maybe he's not a, the, the typical example. He's a bit of a, an anomaly because of his situation. But you know, looking at a specific player, let's put it this way: to fill a need you're looking for in your team, maybe he's an up and coming free agent. Maybe he's a trade chip that could fit your team's needs. But another player catches your eye that, in your opinion, may be miscast with his current club and could provide something missing from your lineup in another defined role. Do you look for that as well at times? One hundred percent, absolutely, you do because those those are those are the cases that are probably more uh, you know that, that happen more often. Is that just that that uh, there might not be a lot of uh, ceiling for a player in a certain organization because they have a lot of that already. Yeah, but it doesn't mean he can't play on another team in another organization and contribute and contribute in a big way. So those are players that. Uh, uh, you, you usually don't have to work hard to find those type of players because they, they jump out off the page at you all the time, I, I find. Squid. How yeah. many times, Nick, uh, I know I hear a lot from scouts where, uh, or there's been stories told over the years that so-and-so went to scout this guy who was a big name, but somebody else caught his eye, and that guy ended up playing in the National League, and, and that wasn't even the guy he was going to scout. How many times has that happened for you when you go to watch an American League game or or whatever league it is, and you're going there to scout a specific player or possible trade, but someone else jumps out at you. 
often you know it happens a lot and and uh, yeah. um and i know what happens with other people too and even even other positions not just scouts but but skill development people and and goalie coaches so i you probably come across him in 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 the niagara area um in jim bedard uh wrecked a goal old goaltender yeah. and goalie coach for a long time with mm -hmm. the red wings well jim's told the story and, and when i was coaching in toledo we were affiliated with the with the red wings so i i obviously uh got to interact with jim an awful lot and and he uh he he tells a story all the time where he was sent on on a to evaluate a goaltender and it might, he might have played for the usa program or was playing against the usa program and, and he went in to look at this goalie look at this goalie and leaving the rink ken holland called him and said you know what would you think of the goalie he said i thought the goalie was great you know yeah he you know he, he the guy i saw tonight's the guy we want to pursue and he said but ken he's not the guy that you sent me to watch it's the other guy <laughs> and uh yeah so um you know that that happens a lot for sure and uh um you know you hope that and, and one look you, you you can't be you know you can't go all in on one look and that's where um, you know, even with us, with, with Nashville, if somebody likes somebody, well, it'll be highlighted in our system. So if another scout sees them, he's going to know that, hey, let's get a different opinion. And and if it's something that looks like we, we may want to move on, well, then it's kind of everybody's all in and you're trying to pick up some games quickly uh, on this player just to get different opinions and and make sure you're getting exactly what you're getting, including, you know, the people in our in our office where they're sending us game tape as well just to watch if we're not able to get to them. So in shifts and, and things things like that. So I, I think that's the, the one of the biggest uh, things as far as a pro scout and the importance as a pro scout is you, you have to be sure because there's a lot of money invested in these players and you don't right. want to make wrong decisions where it's uh, not only the, the actual cost of the dollars and cents involved in this player, but more importantly in today's game, what it's eaten up on your salary cap as well. Yeah. Now, how many, how many times if you were looking at a player, like let's just say, Nashville are putting together a trade with whatever team and that happens to be one of your teams. How many times would you go watch that team to make sure that you're, you know, the deal is going to be in your favor or whatever it might be. How many times would you go watch that team? So for, for me, and, and I think scouts are a little differently. I, I like to try and see a, a team, probably a dozen times a year, if not more, but at least a dozen times. And, and really half of that before our, our meetings in January and then, you know, the other half afterwards. So, um, you know, because you, you're trying to mask the whole team and, and watch everybody and then you're trying to watch the team they're playing against if it's one of yours as well. So for me, I, I feel like I have a good handle on on teams and, and, and players, you know, after about four or five looks for sure. But of those four or five looks, maybe three of the guys that I want to see might've not been in those games. Maybe they were called up or I just sort of yeah. missed them in, in passing. So um, I, I feel, you know, once you get to about a dozen by the end of the year, you should have a really good handle on everybody. And if you don't, because somebody else, you know, was hurt for a long time, Nick Robertson in, in Toronto is a perfect example. Like we haven't seen mm -hmm. him play yet this year because he was injured. So when he gets back in the lineup, you know, I know I'm sure there'll be a lot of scouts in every organization who want to see how, how he looks coming off that injury and, and see if he can catch up on on some of the, the development time that he's missed on, you know, obviously early in his career, missing a good part of a season. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I, that, and again, that works for me is trying to see him about that time. But then one of the, one of the parts of the seasons that I get really excited about too is the end of the year because you're starting to get the influx of junior players whose careers have just ended mm-hmm. because their teams got beat out, and the university and college players in the U.S. as well for the same reason. Their teams are getting eliminated, and now they're bringing them in. A lot of times they're bringing them into their American Hockey yeah. League teams, but you almost get a free yeah. look at them to just sort of see what they are, what their talents are, what their skills are, and then use that in further looks to see how they're able to progress from your first look. I was going to say, now take us through a day in the life of a pro scout. Obviously, it's imperative you stay current, but how much reading would you do as an example? And part two of the question, Nikki, before you go, is when you're traveling, do you ever double up with another scout? Um, well, for the first part, um, you know, I, I'll probably put in a good hour at home before I leave for the ring, just, just catching up on on um you know newspaper articles and reports and things like that but also going over my notes of that team just just to kind of refresh especially if it's some players that i might not have a great handle on to that point but i like getting to the rink too i i mean i i think i get to the rink earlier as a scout than i did as a player like i i'm there two two and a half hours before the game and you know get set up in a press box and get my book together and my notes together and and um I, I, I'd maybe do a little more than other scouts, but I like to have the player's number and their name, but also their age. And then I get their stats and then I've got their rating that, that we have in our system. So it's all in front of me. I don't have to start flipping through stats and everything else. I, I like to have everything right in front of me and it just helps me uh, uh, just, just go through the process a little better and, and, uh, and, and remembering more of the players as well. Um, and then as far as, uh, Traveling with scouts, uh, we do that often. And whether it's um, uh, driving driving together or, you know, kind of getting trips together. Um, Jerry O'Flaherty is a, has become a good friend of mine. And Jerry lives in Vancouver and he works with Tampa Bay. But Jerry uh, um, is doing just Canada this year because at the start of the year, um, and nobody really knew what was happening with the borders. He just said, I'll stay in Canada and, and the rest of you guys split up the U S so we, we've been on five, six day trips together and, and uh, go walking every afternoon and, and get a little exercise in and, and get our dinners together and, and things like that. So it, it really is a, a good group of, of scouts and, uh, um, you know, some fun personalities as well. And, and we all enjoy spending time with each other and a couple of your old teammates, um, uh, Ozzy is, is still scouting and see him mm-hmm. often. And, um, yeah. let me think who else is, uh, Toronto. I thought there was one more that we had. Oh, I, I see, uh, I see Bob, I used to see Bob McGill a lot, obviously up at the, in the press box. Oh yeah. Toronto with the Marlins when, yeah. when he was doing broadcasting. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's a good group of guys for sure. Well, I was going to say to you now, is there a code in the scouting community, like sharing information or is it first, like if some one of the guys has something for us, is it almost an honor amongst the, because let's face it, you guys are all trying to steal players from each other. A lot of money and a lot of wits are sure. involved in all this. So, <laughs> and when you first start, I'll give you two parts again to this. Any of the season votes give you a hand on how to get started and really how to handle yourself or it was just every man for himself. Well, for the, the first part is, and, and I find it amazing, but I think it's a great way to do it is nobody really talks about players with each other. They, they okay. don't. It's almost like that, taboo so don't even bother bringing it up and i just sort of followed in line uh with that um you you may try and dig around a little bit as far as and and not about players not by any means but hey what do you think do you think you guys might be looking to add somebody or looking to do something maybe closer to the trade deadline so you, you know you might have an idea of what what 
their organizations might be thinking, but that that's about it. Um, there's really no sharing at all of players and your thoughts of players. And I, I kind of find that refreshing a little bit too. Right. Yeah. So, um, but um, uh, and, and it just seems like everybody is, is like that. So now Mike, you're going to have to remind me what part two was. Oh, about. I'm just going to ask, you know, when you started out, like in any of the yeah, young guys yeah. starting out, any of the season scouts give you a hand or was it just like you're on your own? Every single one of them did. It, it really was unbelievable how how uh, how welcoming everybody was. I got in the press box and, you know, you sort of know that, all right, somebody's new here. Everybody came up and shook hands and introduced themselves. And here's my phone number if you need anything. And, and uh, it was really overwhelming how welcoming, um, you know, that fraternity of pro scouts was. And, and uh, you know, from day one, that first year, six years ago, I, I do the same thing. And, and Rick, it's really no different than a new player walking into the locker room, right? Like yeah. everybody's there to introduce themselves and shake hands. And, and the scouting fraternity is exactly the same. Well, it can get pretty lonely, I would imagine, yeah. traveling, you know, by yourself and everything. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming, and I could be wrong, but most of the scouts probably feel the same way. So they want to, you know, make as many friends with the, the other scouts as they possibly can, because those are the guys you're going to see all year. And, you know, I mean, if, if you don't know anybody, it could be a pretty lonely job, I would have to think. Yeah, 100 percent. And, and uh, you know, while, while we're traveling on the road, like, you know, we're constantly getting calls from different guys. And it's great that, you know, a bunch of the Western scouts, too, because they, you can call late at night if you're getting a little road weary and they're still up. And and uh, uh, and then, you know, Sirius XM radio, too, has been fantastic for yeah. picking up late games and such to, to kill time as well. So. Uh, but no, it is a, a great, great group, and and uh, they do make lonely times uh, a little more eventful for sure. Well, Nick, we want to get to kind of how you got to the scouting side. We, we, yeah. we could go on about scouting for a long time. We'll come back to that. But just the beginning, you played junior in the OHL for the Marlies in Toronto. Uh, just take us through the early part of your career. And and again, maybe with your historical background, which you and I have in very much in common, the feeling playing at Maple Leaf Gardens the first time and even pulling that Marley jersey over your head, knowing the history. Yeah, and I was a great uh, or a huge Leaf fan growing up. Like, uh, I, I mean, and being a goaltender, I, I remember Gord McRae, Mike Palmatier was my my first goalie here. I actually almost got cut from a travel team that I played on for three years because I, I showed up in tryouts and, and I wasn't any good. Like, I was just terrible. And the coach who, who was my coach for the last two years, he, he grabbed my dad and he grabbed me and he, He's like, well, what's going on? Does he not want to play? He doesn't look like he's trying. And and my dad's like, well, what's going on, Nick? And I said, well, dad, I don't know. I said, I want to play. And he said, well, coach said, you, you don't look like you're trying. And I said, well, maybe it's because I'm wearing Steve's gloves. And he's like, what? And the, like, the coach went, what? And I said, well, my friend Steve, he catches like Mike Palmatier with the opposite hand. So I've been wearing his gloves. <laughs> so I got a slap upside the head from my dad, a slap upside the other head from my from my coach. And your gloves. So I, I remember running into this coach like years later, and, and he brought up that story. And I said, well, you know, I, I thought about this a lot because I was a little kid then. I didn't know any better, but I've replayed that story. I'm like, you were my coach for, I think, one or two years. And and I looked at my dad and I said, and you were my dad. I said, you guys didn't realize I was on the ice playing opposite hand through like two <laughs> exhibition games and, and four or five practices. And, and uh, but um, no, I had great memories of uh, my, my first ever really pro hockey game I went to. 
uh, was the Toronto Toros game. And uh, yeah. uh, in between periods of that game, Evil Knievel did a celebrity shootout oh, against yeah. Les Binkley, and I was at that game. So, uh, I mean, I was excited when the WHA started. I was only about five or six, but it allowed me to watch more hockey on TV because you had the Leafs and Hockey Night in Canada. But I believe the Toros might have played on Globo, maybe on Tuesday did, nights Global. or – yeah, so um, th that was a lot of fun as well. But, uh, no, it was a thrill to, to step into Maple Leaf Gardens with a goalie bag over my shoulder. Um, we had our tryouts at, at Chesswood Arena up in Toronto with the Marlies. And then once the team was made, we, we moved down to the gardens. And uh, I was already done high school, so I used to uh, – I used to come down real early, Rick, and watch you guys practice during that time in the mornings. And and a couple of us were done high school, so we would go shoot pool or goof around in the afternoon. And then we skated at 4 o'clock. But um, I remember that first day jumping on the ice. I probably was the first one dressed and out a half hour before anybody else. And I just skated around. I think I laid on my back at center ice and looked up through the <laughs> clock for a little while. But it was a huge thrill for me. I I, I went undrafted even into the, the OHL and and uh, made the Marlies as a as a tryout and a walk-on. And and uh so that was uh, that was the moon for me. And uh I had uh you know it was great memories playing there, um playing in that that historic building. I still when I'm in Toronto I'll still pop in there every once in a while and just uh, obviously it's much different now but but get upstairs and, and look around and, and read read all the signage and stuff. Well isn't it amazing what they did with that building and you know, I played there a, a bunch of hockey games there uh, in the last five, six years or so. And it's kind of funny. You go up to that. It's the third floor. The building still looks the same, the roof and everything. It's just a whole lot closer to you because you're on the third floor now. And it's, but they did one hell of a job in kind of keeping that the rink part similar to what Maple Leaf Gardens look like. And I, I, I always enjoy going in there because it reminds me of my days in Toronto, but they did a heck of a job. Yeah, they, they really did. The one thing I wish, and Mike, you, you might be able to chirp in on this more, but I wish they would have did a little, they maybe made more of a spectacle of center ice and, and where it was in the grocery store instead of that, just that orange or red dot that's painted on, yeah. on the, yeah. in that aisle. You know, I wish they, they, they probably could have did something, uh, you know, obviously that that's a very historical spot in, in the arena for sure. But I agree, Rick, like they, they did a great job at, at lifting all of that and, and bringing the ring up to up, you know, three or four floors, whatever it is. But once you're at that point, you look at the ceiling, you, you kind of feel like you're in the old arena a little bit still. Oh, yeah. They should have yeah. had the original well, center ice crest. Yeah. Yeah. They could have did something like that, too. Well, they could have they could have put Harold Ballard's picture on that <laughs> center ice dot. People stepping on it, but you know, uh, that, maybe that wouldn't maybe that wouldn't go over that well. I'm not I'm not too sure. But the other good thing about it is it's brought Ryerson uh, sports teams. Like a lot of them are in the top ten in Canada now. The yeah. hockey team, the girls' hockey team, uh, the volleyball, basketball. Because they have the, that that um, those amenities now right down the road, you know, blocks away from from Ryerson, it, it's made them uh, perennial one of the favorites in in, in different sports in Canada now in uh, college. It, it really has, and and my nephew actually was a goalie. So Vicky's son Brody was a goalie for Ryerson, and and uh, still oh, okay. works uh, still works there at, uh, for the university. So. Um, but uh, it has, I think it's just uh, for, for Canadian University Hockey, they have, you know, it, it's just the cream of the crop, I think, what they have, uh, you know, for the student athletes for sure. And uh, 
Um, yeah, it, it is. It, it's an awesome building, and it certainly brings back memories every time I get to Toronto and, and get up that way. So, so Nick, how did the Carolina opportunity in ECHL develop? And second part of that, well, we love these two-parters today for you. They're trying <laughs> to trip you up here and see it. Use your memory bank as, as a scout to see what you're remembering. But did you ever think after that first year you'd play 14 years, retire as <laughs> the career leader in games played, minutes played, most 20-win seasons, most 30-win seasons? We'll ignore the most losses, but you get the idea. Yeah, you know what? I was um, I, I was really fortunate. So the, the first year of the ECHL, and it, it was the Atlantic Coast Hockey League before that. So yeah. it just it changed uh, names and, and kind of got a different uh, direction as far as leadership with Pat Kelly coming in, being the, the first ever commissioner of that. And one of his, uh, you know, what he wanted to do was just clean it up. He didn't want it to be a slap shot league and brawling every night. But I, I actually tried out for the Johnstown Chiefs. Um, that season, the first year it was 88, 89. There was only five teams in the league. Um, I was I was given a tryout by a fellow by the name of Joe Selensky, who saw me in a free agent camp in Peoria, Illinois, and he offered me a, a tryout. So, but by the time training camp started, he he had already been fired. And uh, Steve Carlson, that we all know from Slapshot, was the yeah. new coach. So they still honored my tryout, and and I went in there and and you know did, thought I did okay, but but there was other goaltenders that that were pretty good too, and I ended up getting cut from that team. So driving home, I uh, I stopped in Erie. We had played an exhibition game two days earlier against Erie, and I I thought I had a pretty good game. I played the first half of the game, so I stopped in and and stopped and talked to Ron Hansis, who was the coach and the owner of the Erie yeah. Panthers and uh, asked him, are you happy, you know, do, are you looking at anybody? And he said, Nick, you know, I, I kind of got to go with the guys that I have now. And I said, all right, that, that's great. Thank you for, you know, for your time. And so I drove home to Welland and I was done. I was playing forward in a beer league for the Groff Tire Oilers. And, and, uh, <laughs> and, and that, that was going to be my path. I actually got, so my father had a plumbing business, a little plumbing business, and, and I had worked with him every summer. And, and uh, um, so what, what I decided I was going to do was I was going to, you know, jump into the apprentice. I, I could use all those hours that I worked with them and, and use them towards a plumber's apprenticeship. And then General Motors was hiring in St. Catharines. So I did an assessment program, um, got called back for a physical, and ultimately was offered a position with General Motors. And, and what the, the goal was that if I was able to get in there, I was going to continue my plumbing apprenticeship uh, in General Motors and, and, and then get hired as a skilled tradesman. And that was going to be my life. And um, it was December 26th. It was Boxing Day. Of, uh, of 1988 and Joe Selensky, the gentleman who offered me the trial with the Johnstown Chiefs before he got fired, called me and said, I've just been named head coach of the Carolina Thunderbirds and I need a goalie. And I'm like, Joe, I haven't been on the ice in two months in, in goalie equipment. I, I, I've been playing, I, I got nine goals in the beer league right now. Like I'm a, <laughs> I'm a tough and, and he said, listen, Nick, he said, I, I you know, I, I think the world of you that, that what I've seen you play and, and I think you could be a big help. I think this would be great for you. I'll give you all the time you need to get back in shape. Just get down here. So I hummed and hawed it. And, and finally my dad said, listen, Nick, he said, you're, you're 21 years of age. You have 44 years till you retire at General Motors at 65. What's 43 or 42 or 40 years going to make a difference? And, you know, so obviously with the support of my family, my parents, uh, January 1st of 1989, I was driving down to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and, uh, and started my pro hockey career. So the first game, I didn't even play the first game. We were in Roanoke. It was the old uh, Virginia Lancer lot. And 
I backed up that game, and I remember at we were going to Erie from from Roanoke. But back then, and, and Rick, you you would know this too, is you know your your post game meals they weren't uh, five star dinners by any means. They were truck stops and little corner restaurants and stuff. And so the bus we left the arena, and, and we just drove a mile or two to a little restaurant to pick up our food that we had ordered off a menu before the game. And of course, I'm I'm on the team for one day, so I'm I'm off the bus first. I help carry whatever I have to carry, and the lady walked up to me and this restaurant and she said y'all want to come to my place for a pig picking there was about four of us that were there and i'm like what what'd she say and then she repeated herself y'all want to come to my place for a pig picking when you get off the road trip and i'm like ma'am i said I don't know what y'all is. I don't know what reckon is. And I have no idea what a big picking is, but she ended up being the, the president of our booster club and just a wonderful woman. But that was, that was my first experience down South ever. So we're, we're driving from Roanoke to Erie through the night and we get awoken in the middle of the night, the bus stops, but it was just a couple big thuds. So as everybody's waking up, we hear scraping and everything else going on under the bus. And I was like, what's going on? And, I hear some of the veteran players wrote arguing with the coach. Well, we had hit a couple deer and he was from Alaska, Joe Selensky. He wanted the deer on the bus and bring them back. So he's trying to drag equipment out and dragging these deer carcasses onto the bus. And our, you know, luckily the veteran <laughs> players said, no, no, no way. But um, the next night uh, in Erie, I got my first start. Uh, we lost six, five in a shootout. And, and then we played them again the next day. And I got back to the hotel Phoned my parents after that game. Of course, back in the day, it was collect call from Nick. I don't know if kids would even know what that, that meant now, but I called home and my mom said, General Motors called, you start Monday. Um, so I was like, oh boy, here we go. But obviously I I stayed on, I, I phoned the gentleman at General Motors, told him what I was doing and uh, and uh, the you know the rest of it was, was history for me playing minor pro hockey. Uh, talk about the championships, like yeah. four of them. Yeah, no, it was, uh, you know, and I really hadn't won anything through minor hockey or any, you know, big championships. And and uh, that first year we were, we were, I mean, there were five teams in the league. We were, we were in fifth place for most of the year. We, we kind of, I think it was, we, we needed to win like six of our last seven games and needed Roanoke to lose six of their last seven games to even get into that fourth spot. And, and it happened. So we were, we were battle tested by the time we got into the playoffs and, um, um, Erie finished, I, I believe Erie finished 26 or 28 points ahead of us. And we met them in the first round. So it was one versus four seed and, and we swept them in four games. And then, uh, uh, Johnstown the team that, that had cut me in training camp, we ended up winning, uh, in seven games in Johnstown. Um, I think everybody in the world was in that arena last night because you couldn't see a staircase in the arena. Everybody was sitting on them, and I'm sure every fire code was broken. But it was a it was a great experience. And and um, and then the next season, um, uh, I ended up getting traded to Greensboro halfway through the year, and we went on to win a championship. Uh, I started the playoffs that year, and ended up we had a brawl after game two, and ended up getting a, a two game suspension. And then my goalie partner. Um, who was pretty good himself? He he went in and he didn't give up the net after that. His his name was Wade Flaherty, so Wade went on to play, you know, for for quite a while in the National Hockey League, and and uh, he's a goalie coach now for for the Winnipeg Jets. So I get to see him a lot when I go through Winnipeg as well. But uh, um, you know, the championships were great. I, I picked up one more in uh, uh, in Toledo, but kind of the same thing with Greensboro. I just I was kind of a cheerleader for that one because I was uh, I was under contract with St. Louis for that season and and uh, 
Um, I was I was up in Peoria. By the time I got sent back down, um, Dave Gagnon was my goalie partner, and he was on a run, and he wasn't giving up the net. And then the last one was 95-96, playing for the Charlotte Checkers. And and that was a, that was still probably my most memorable one. We had such a, a, a close group, and, and we're still great friends to this day. And, and uh, um, uh, Sean, uh, Sean Wheeler, Daryl Nor and I had played with for a few years in Greensboro yeah. prior to. And, uh, and Marksy was such a, a great coach and a great person. And, and uh, that, that was a fun team. That was a, just a tight team. And, and uh, um, that, that was probably the most fun I, I had in, in, a, uh, in a season was playing that year with that Charlotte Checkers team. And I picked up one well, more was, as, a, uh, as an assistant coach with the that, Greenville Growl too, with uh, with Marksy. I was his assistant coach and and was able to win a fifth one um, uh, with him that year. Boy, we had some battles that, uh, yeah. those years when when Marksy was in yeah. uh, Charlotte. Uh, whenever we played them, and Wheeler was a big part of that. Uh, big big guy that like to play a physical game, and uh, we had some pretty big guys yeah. as well. So, but it was a lot of fun and. I think during the five years that I was in Charleston, I think Marksy won a – I think we almost had identical records yeah. in those five years. Yeah. He was in Charlotte. I was in Charleston. We both won a championship. I think we both had pretty close to the same winning percentage. It, it was a lot of fun. It was It was good. It was a great rivalry. Yeah. Well, that year, 95-96, I think we eliminated you guys in the third round. And then we went on to play uh, – Jeff Brubaker was coaching Jacksonville, and we went on and swept them in four mm -hmm. in the finals. And then the next season, we met you guys in the first round. And I remember – I Rick, I remember this like it was yesterday, looking at the shot clock after the first period, skating off the ice – at the South Charleston Coliseum, and it was like twenty-seven to two in your favor. And I remember getting in the locker room, going, <laughs> thinking to myself, like, we're in a lot of trouble here. And I, I think, I think we might have got one, maybe one win out of you. And you guys went on to win your, I think, your first championship that year. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, that was uh, they. They were a lot of fun. I, I mean, I remember obviously playing against Fitzy, but uh, Sean Goche might have been there a year or two earlier too before yeah. Fitzy came. And what a, I thought he was he just was, a, yeah. a fan fantastic goaltender as well but you guys uh you guys had good teams as well there was always fun uh always fun going in there and, and playing against you guys because you know again i i knew we would have to be our best to, to even hopefully get a win out of there um now we're yeah. running a, we're getting close here in the time but we always ask all the guys over the years you touched on it earlier nick about uh, the beer league players and stuff like that sure. some of the stranger things that develop in echl it, you know, the cold, obviously the cold showers, but the bus <laughs> breaking down, picking up beer league players to fill rosters, all that. We've had trainers play goal for teams before. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the crazier, over 14 years, well, more than 14 years, you've seen a few things. Well, I mean, it was really early on. I, I remember a player got traded from us for a dozen sticks and seven sticks showed up. Uh, another guy got another guy got traded for a home game like a switch of a of dates for a home game from a friday to a saturday night or something so you know that that was the early years of, of those of that league and and some of the, the crazy stories that uh 
that went on with them. But uh, I mean, broken buses and hitchhiking, um, you know, home from games, uh, uh, that, that happened a lot in those early years. And, and we spent a lot of time walking up uh, the Interstate 40, um, you know, between Knoxville and Nashville and, and Winston-Salem and Greensboro when buses broke. But the craziest story I had, I, in 92-93, I played for John Brophy with the Hampton Road Admirals. And uh, I loved Brof. I, I mean, I thought he was fantastic. And, and what I learned quickly from Brof was if you were an established player and you worked hard, he didn't say boo to you. But the young kids, if he was trying to groom somebody or you had a little bit of dog in you, you're in for the worst time of your life. But uh, we were on a trip. Uh, we were leaving Wheeling. We were going to the Pittsburgh airport. And the team was going to fly the next morning to Raleigh, North Carolina, to play the Raleigh Ice Caps. And the bus was dropping us off at the hotel and then driving to Raleigh. Um, so our equipment would be there. One o'clock game the next day in Raleigh. But we're leaving Wheeling. Uh, the I-70 heading towards Pittsburgh, and we get in an accident. A, a pickup truck spins in front of us. We T-bone it. The highway gets clogged up. Cars are coming down on black ice, bouncing off the bus. Like, it, it was crazy. So it all got cleaned up. We get back on the bus. We're driving now. We're about 40 minutes from the Pittsburgh airport. And the bus driver, he, he's like, I, I got to pull over. I got to pull over. He's driving the bus, and he can't hold on to the steering wheel. And, and broke you're quitting on us. You're a quitter. He's screaming at the bus driver. Bus driver couldn't hold on. Um, so we end up limping into a truck stop. And, and of course, a truck driver comes up to me. We're all wearing our tracks. He asked what we're, we are, what we're doing. I told him. He said, well, I got an 18-wheeler out there with a half a load of furniture. I could probably fit you guys on there and bring you to the airport. So I grabbed Brof, told him the story. Brof walked up to him. You see some money exchange? And we all piled on the back of an 18-wheeler for our for, for the rest of our leg to fly to Raleigh. <laughs> so that was, that was one of my favorite stories from the 90s. That's a pretty good one. Season. Yeah, yeah. But uh, oh, I've actually man. got pictures. I've got pictures of it. I've got pictures of us in the truck and getting out of the truck and Brof and the highway. But Brof trudged up the top of this hill because cars are hitting black ice and sliding down. So he's trying to slow him down. Well, he's wearing a long black leather jacket. It's a snowstorm out. And he's got that big white head of hair. Like, could you imagine driving and seeing that? It's like the abdominal snowman or something coming at you. But um, no, it was a lot of fun playing for him. And, and you know, he and and the owner, uh, uh, Mr. Cullen, they, they treated us like we were in the NHL. They really did. They, they took yeah. care of us. And, and it was a great franchise to play for as well. You know, it's funny. I'm glad to hear you say that about Brof because uh, I love the guy too. I played for him twice in Birmingham yeah. in the WHA and then in, in Toronto. And I think a lot of players had a misconception of Brof that he wanted everybody to be tough guys. And that wasn't the case at all. Brof just wanted you to give him 100% yep. of the way you played, uh, your style of game. So if you were a goal scorer, then give him 100% of that. And that's all he ever asked for. And uh, I, I love the man. I, I, I really did. Um, got to play for him twice. And uh, uh, he always treated me with respect. He treated all the players with, with respect. There was, there was nights where he would come in and tear a pretty damn good strip off a lot of players, including myself. But you know what? That was part of the game. I mean, he, had, yep. he was a head coach. And uh, that was his style of coaching. Yeah, no, I, I love playing for him and, and uh, you know, the exact same thing. He'd get on you and uh, and bring bring the most out of you and bring the best out of you. And I, I just felt like he he cared so deeply and passionately about the game. 
And if you didn't match that care, mm -hmm. um, he probably didn't have a lot of time for you either. But I, I found that if you challenged him too, if you let him have it once in a while, he actually liked you better because of it. If, if you'd be back at yeah. him or something too, because because he was a competitor and he liked to be in in, in the heat once in a while too. But uh, he was certainly a, a, a character number one. But he he cared deeply. And and uh, I remember um, the that that year at the end of the year, I'm, I'm going in for my for my year end meeting with him, and I'm in the office, and and we went alphabetical order. So I was like the last one on the team with the letter V. And I walked out, and and if you remember, Rick, but all the prisoners uh, in at the Hampton Road Arena there. Uh, they would clean the arena after yeah. all the games. They all got their jumpsuits from the prison just down the street. And that was, you know, kind of their work detail that they had. And and uh, I walked back in the locker room and Mark Bernard was my goalie partner. I'm like, Bernie, what's going on? They're all lined up outside of Brof's, Brof's office. And Bernie told me, he said, Nick, he said, he buys 12 suits a year and he wears them during the hockey season. And at the end of the year, he has all the prisoners come in. He has them in one at a time. He yells and screams at them about getting their life in order. And when they get out of prison, they got to do better. And he would give them all a suit and say, when you get out of prison, wow. you come back and get this suit. You go to a job interview. You look respectful and, and go get a job and smarten up kind of thing. And, and you know, those are the kind of the stories that yeah. a lot of people didn't know about John Brophy, but but he was passionate yeah. about that stuff. Yeah, he was he was he was a very good man. Uh, yeah. Would give you the shirt off his back uh, if you needed it, and uh, I, I love the guy, and um, I love playing for him. I, yeah. I, I don't know any other way to put it. And it's funny because eventually I ended up coaching against him. Oh, that's right. He yeah, was back in Norfolk, and he wanted to fight me one night. <laughs> I'm like, like, come on, bro. Yeah. Like, and I call him an old man or whatever. And here I am now. And I, I look you like look like him. Now. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I just want to say to you, we got a couple minutes left here. Yeah. Very quickly on the collecting. How did that yeah. start? And you've got a fantastic collection. I hope we can put up a couple pictures here and show what show it. But maybe tell us that passion. Yeah, you know what? It and and as a little kid, just growing up as a big hockey fan and watching, you know, the Toronto Maple Leafs and and. Uh, I was fortunate. My dad introduced me to two sports and one of them was hockey and the other one was auto racing. And, and, uh, um, we used, he used to take me to the Niagara Falls Flyers games and, and we had some senior and intermediate teams here in Welland, uh, the Welland merchants. And then, uh, the Welland, uh, Steelers, actually the Welland Steelers was a senior A team that Lou Nistico played for at one time. But whenever we went to games, he would always buy me a puck. We'd go to the souvenir table or the souvenir shop and he'd buy me a puck. And then, you know, if I started to accumulate doubles, I would knock on referees doors. I was probably four or five years old knocking on referees doors and seeing if they wanted to trade pucks um, because I knew they always had them. And, and you know, that's where it really started was, was pucks. And then, you know, coming through minor hockey, you, you'd get patches and, and pucks and go to tournaments and things like that. So it just it kind of grew all, all from there. Um, and it's something I still do today. I even when I'm driving, I'll hit antique malls and thrift stores and and go by old stock car tracks as well as going by old arenas and just just walking around them I, it wasn't uh, too long ago i was in springfield and and wanted to see that old springfield arena the old coliseum and snuck in a back door and was walking around just just to kind of take it all in but it, it's just something that i enjoy doing as a hobby and and uh, as you know mike you meet great people as well that yes. are in the hobby and and uh, it's a lot of fun meeting them Fantastic. I, I, I love it. Well, listen, uh, we, we can't thank you enough for joining us today, Nick. It's been fantastic. Wow. We could talk to you forever. It just seems so natural. And Squid, any of the final comments before we let Nicky go? 
No, except you got a great collection there. And uh, I know, obviously, this man right here probably had the best collection yeah. of all time because he had my World, uh, junior, world junior 78. Oh, uh, nice, nice. Junior sweater. <laughs> <laughs> and believe it or not, those were blue with a white That's right. maple leaf. Or red. Was it red maple Oh, blue with the red, with the, yeah. And they had the red writing. Yeah, the red, yeah. And the uh, blue crest. I went to his place many times and saw all the things he had in there. And then the one time I went there, there was that sweater sitting there, and I'm looking at it, and I'm going, wow, that that was the year <laughs> I played for the World Juniors. And then I look at the number, and it's 23, <laughs> and it's my sweater. <laughs> well, what uh, Way to go, Mike. <laughs> well, it's now in the Museum of History in Ottawa, so it's now it's the legacy will continue. Perfect. Well, Mike, I yeah. look forward to seeing the collection with, with mine and, and mostly my pucks. I've got over 7,000 different pucks. I tell everybody each puck represents a garbage goal that I let in during my career. So that's why I'm up to about 7,000. <laughs> but um, um, but I, I can't thank you guys enough for, for you know allowing me to spend uh, this time with you guys and hearing the stories and sharing the stories. So thank you very much. Well, thanks very much, Nikki, and listen, all the best to you. Thanks for joining us and good luck. Thanks, Mike, and I'll be calling you for a tour. 